0: Uh, So in just a minute, we're going to be settling in to hear the word of God and hear the proclamation of God's word through a sermon through our lead pastor, Jared. But before we do so, we're going to hold a little space for some silence. Being quiet, even for just a few minutes, can be a really hard thing to do. And it's also an incredible practice when we stop and intentionally focus our thoughts even as they wander. It settles us and connects us to the actual place that we are right now. And often it is easier to hear from God and speak to God in those spaces. So we're going to take just a couple minutes and I'm going to offer a couple guiding questions along the way. I invite you to hold on to them and consider them as you slow down and meet with God today. So Lord, come... Holy Spirit, friends, I invite you to consider your week. Where have you noticed God's presence to you through another person? Spend some time allowing God to draw your attention to the people in your week that have loved you well. What would you like to say to God as you become aware of the way that others have loved you this week? amen we're now going to turn to the word of god and i invite you to really hear these good words of scripture and let them soak in today's text is from hebrews 11 now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see this is what the ancients were commended for By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father, because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man and he as good as dead came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. God bless the reading of his word.
1: Thank you. What a long passage of scripture. She should should get an applause for that one. Wow, it's amazing. Thank you, Tori, so much. It's good to be with you guys. If you are new here, I'm Jared, and I am the pastor, and I'm a new pastor. Uh, We have like Four weeks under our belt, friends, um, and I just want to say, obviously, we have tweaked the order of service and the liturgy a little bit here at Central Vineyard. We're going to continue to to play with that a little bit, but then what's going to happen is in March, uh, we are going to begin about a three month teaching series where we're going to teach through each section of our new order of service and begin to explain why did we make those changes. Um, and so that's kind of what's ahead on the horizon. Um, But today, we have a piece of scripture that clearly has a theme by faith. So Dorothy was from a different era. She was born in 1897, uh, just a couple of years um, after this church building was built, this one that we worship in, I believe was built in 1895. So Dorothy was born in 1897. And in her early 20s, she's living in New York, and she's trying to carve out a life, and she, she later writes about the period that she's living in New York, and she says this about her life. She says, in all that great city of seven million people, I found no friends. I had no work. I was separated from my fellows. Silence in the midst of city noises oppressed me, my own silence, the feeling that I had no one to talk to, overwhelmed me so that my throat was constricted. My heart was heavy with unuttered thoughts. I wanted to weep my loneliness away. How many of you have ever been there? Okay, and the rest of you are lying, so that's fine. (laughs) So throughout her 20s, she encountered poverty of the worst kind. She frequented the saloons of Greenwich Village on the Lower West Side and was said to be admired by the local gangsters for the fact that she could really hold her liquor. And all of this was happening during the time of prohibition. So you can imagine the kind of life that she was living. She worked in a local hospital um, during the flu pandemic in Brooklyn in 1918, moving dead bodies to the morgue. She moved in with an older man, she had an abortion a few years later, she got arrested a couple of times, and would occasionally stop in at St. Joseph's Cathedral Church on 6th Avenue, where she first began to utter her first prayer, God be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. For most of the next decade, she lived in poverty, she lived in loneliness, she got pregnant again, and then found that she unexpectedly, and without really trying, she had begun to pray a little bit each and every day. But it wasn't a prayer of desperation, that's the thing that stood out to her. She was in a desperate situation, she was poor, she was pregnant, she was going to be a single mother, and the prayers that she began to pray were prayers of gratitude for the life that begun to stir within her and so her shoulders begin to turn towards Jesus and towards the church and she thought to herself I really want my baby to be baptized and so walking through Brooklyn and she bumps into a nun and she grabs the nun and says, how can my baby become baptized and the nun basically says well we have a little work to do (laughs) and the nun a known named nun who herself had immersed herself in a life of prayer that had been handed down from the church Began to come to her house three times a week during her pregnancy and begin to teach her the way of faith. And when that baby was born, that baby was baptized. And a year later, she herself was baptized into faith. She lived the rest of her life held by the church where she allowed the life of Jesus and the teachings of the church and the people that she encountered there to radically reorient what she wanted her life to become and what she was willing to do in order to see the poor receive the dignity that they deserved. What a life. This is Dorothy Day. How many of you have heard of Dorothy Day? Of course you've heard of Dorothy Day. She went on to begin a network of houses of hospitality for the poor, which came to be the Catholic workers' movement. She protested every war during her lifetime. She earned a spot on the FBI's uh, watch list for her writings about workers' rights and child labor, and she is presently being considered for sainthood in the Catholic Church because she simply allowed the gathered people of God who make up the family of God across centuries of generations and cultures to hold her and to guide her and to allow her to live the life that God was inviting her to live. So we've been doing a series over the past couple of weeks uh, and into the next couple of weeks where our desire is to sort of introduce you to um, the teaching team as it's presently constructed here at Central Vineyard, people uh, that, that you are going to continue to hear from over and over. I've become convinced over time that a church needs to hear from multiple voices. And so what we want to try to do is cultivate those voices here. Um, and by the way, I got to pause for a moment and just, guys, look at the sunshine coming through. I mean, <laughs> It's February in Ohio, and I just feel like, like there are angels about to break out in chorus. <laughs> glory, glory. I'm looking at the Buckleys over here. They're, they're squinting because of the sun, and I'm like, what is happening? Well, I've been praying for sunshine, so maybe God has answered my prayer. So, um, so friends, uh, I want to I wanna just say to you that the, the task of opening up the scriptures and preaching the word, we take that really seriously here. And so we're going to build a team of people that, um, that are going to dig into that work together and to serve us in that way. So we've asked each of these teachers and preachers to answer one question in their teaching, which is, um, what do I love about the church? And so we heard from uh, Carl, and we heard from uh, Tor- Tori, and we heard from Thomas, and I'm going to follow suit and talk to you a little bit about what i love about the church and one of the things that i love about the church is that the church invites us into the possibility of radically reordering our life towards faith and and that by joining the church we join a host of people who whose lives are rooted in the teachings of jesus and gathered spaces like this and at least in its purest form in its most like possible form the church allows us to live our life according to an entirely different narrative than exists out there today's teaching text comes from an anonymously written letter to a first century community of jewish christians which is why the letter is called the letter to the hebrews and the people who received this letter are men and women whose heritage is that they come from the same family line that Jesus does. They're all from the tribe of Israel, um, whose forefather, Abraham, we read about in the first five books of the Bible called um, the Torah. And so these Christians that the writer is writing to would have been really familiar with the whole story of God going all the way back to the very beginning. And and the writer um, recognizes that these people have as their primary identity this particular story. So God was primarily speaking to these people uh, through their history and through God's representative son, Jesus the Messiah. And then the rest of the book of the Hebrews is encouraging them throughout the letter at various points to remain faithful to the story to orient their lives and order their lives towards the person of Jesus, even in the midst of a world that is really confusing and doesn't really understand why they're trying to live the life that they're trying to live. And I'll just say to you guys, most people have no idea why we're here on a Sunday morning. Do you guys know that? Increasingly, most people are like, give me brunch and a mimosa, right? So, if you were with us the first sunday of this year i shared a little bit of my story and i asked a very basic question which is like how did we get here and uh, one of the questions that i have for you good people is why are you here more importantly why are you still here and i asked the question primarily because we're living through a radical change in north american christianity it's, it's a radical thing happening. Um, in the middle of 2023, um, author Jake Medor, who writes for The Atlantic, opened his article in, in this way. He writes this, nearly everyone I grew up with in my childhood church in Lincoln, Nebraska, is no longer a Christian. How many can relate to that? and that's not unusual he goes on to write 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the past 25 years so since this church began more than 40 million people have stopped attending church in our country that's something like 12% of the population and it represents the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history as a christian this is jake meador continuing to write i feel this shift acutely My wife and I wonder whether the institutions and the communities that have helped preserve us in our faith will still exist for our four children, let alone whatever grandkids we might have one day. And in this article, the author cites some data from political scientists who have interviewed more than 7,000 Americans attempting to explain why people have left the church and he notes that the data seems to indicate that people are leaving the church for a variety of reasons. Yes, there's abuse of leadership that is being uncovered. Yes, there is like sexual scandal that is being uncovered. But by and large, the reasons for leaving the church are more basic and can be summed up more or less like this. Again, I'm, I'm quoting here from the article from The Atlantic. That the defining problem driving out most people who leave is just how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life together. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or as one ages the professional prospects of one's children. Guys, this is the world that we live in. There's nothing about our culture that is supporting you being here. So thank you for being here. I know that it's a task. I know that it's something that you chose to do this morning every cultural force is pushing against us gathering together for worship and at the heart of what it means to be the people of god is to believe that it is possible to live by an entirely different story even when we can't see the possibility of that and that's what i want to talk to you about this morning this is otherwise known as faith And this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to stir up in this community. He's trying to stir up their sense of faith. And so I want to sum up the encouragement, and I want to pass the encouragement along to you with three mental pictures that I want to invite you to consider. Okay, you ready? A dimly lit room, a not-so-great mirror, and endless stadium seating. So picture yourself in a dimly lit room, If the sun weren't shining so bright, it would be this room. (laughs) A not-so-great mirror and endless stadium seating, like Taylor Swift times 100, okay? So, first, a dimly lit room. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it's the conviction of things that are not seen It's like standing in a dimly lit room where you can't quite make out the orientation of the room, but you know that there is someone that you love that is standing outside the door on the opposite side of the room, and they're inviting you to come and join them, but you have to make your way through a room that you cannot quite see. And you're probably afraid of like bumping your toe on the furniture. What it looks like to have faith is to walk with conviction through a room that you can't quite see through. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to introduce a whole range of examples from this community's lineage and heritage of people who demonstrate what it looks like to live with the assurance of the things that they hope for, even when they cannot see it. So just one example, um, verse 3 says this, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what was seen was not made out of what was visible, So friends, the the predominant narrative in that time about how the world came to be was a Babylonian narrative. So everybody would have thought that the way that the world became into an existence was that there were two gods, uh, Marduk and Tiamat, who had a war. Marduk is a man and Tiamat is a woman. And Marduk destroys Tiamat and splits her body open. And the earth was founded on such a story this is how everyone would have thought the entire universe was created and so in the middle of that understanding and that prevailing narrative the writer of genesis tells an entirely different story a story about the spirit of god hovering over the chaos like a dove flying over water and then the triune god speaks into the chaos and woos the chaos into the beauty of creation how different of a story is this do you guys see the difference of those two stories one is about war and about destruction and about men prevailing over women and destroying them what would your understanding of what your life was meant to be about if this was the story that you're living in the other one is about a beautiful spirit God wooing creation into existence out of love in the midst of one narrative A new narrative is birthed into, and then people are invited to live in this new narrative by faith, to just believe it, even when you can't quite see it. And then the writer goes on and on about all the different people who chose to live in a story with confidence and assurance of what God was speaking to them, even when they couldn't quite make it out all so clearly. He talks about Abel, by faith, making a gift to God of some of the finest cuts of meat in his flock. He, he talks about Noah, who, who felt like he heard from God that there was going to be a giant storm. And so then Noah spends his entire life of 80 plus years building a boat When no one knew really what that big of a boat was ever going to be used for. He lived by faith. And he goes on to tell seven more little stories of men and women who lived in a dimly lit room with a quiet confidence and a deep assurance that the creator of the universe was asking something of them. That's what it means to live by faith talks about Moses that Tori talked about a couple of weeks ago, who refused a life of privilege because he had this sense that God wanted to do something with his life. And then in verse 32, I'm saving you like lots of like stories here, so we're fast forwarding verse 32. What what else am I going to tell you about? For time will fail me, If I tell of Gideon, and Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the the, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to fight, women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release, and so that they may attain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourging. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. People were sawn in half. They were tempted. They were put to death by the sword, and they went on believing, which is like another way of saying, isn't it amazing that we're still here? The writer of Hebrews is writing to the descendants of the people that he is naming in the story and is effectively saying, Look at all of the things that we've been through together. Look at all of the people who have oriented their life to God and yet couldn't quite see come to pass all the things that they were hoping for. Friends, we live in a story that began with people standing in a dimly lit room, hearing the whispers of the voice of God just outside of a door that they couldn't see, and all of them walked with assurance, knowing that that whisper would lead them in the right direction and give them everything that they needed. This is what it means to be a part of a community like this. It means to live by faith, that the thing that we're doing here is prophetic and it's different, and we just have to keep showing up to do it because this is the true story. I heard an amen over here. It's really great. It's not really part of our culture, but man, let it rip. I love it. A dimly lit room and an invitation to pay attention to something that you cannot see. And then, in the midst of this dimly lit room, Isaiah the prophet comes along and says this, the people who walk in darkness, dimly lit room, will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness a light has dawned for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end i know it's really strange to hear this outside of christmas But this is the prophet Isaiah saying, in the midst of darkness, light is going to come. And this child born into the world grew up and stood at the temple doorway and said, I am the light of the world. It's a great story. And he preached the message of new creation that was beginning right here in the midst of this old one. And he asked the people around him to believe that what he was beginning would work its way into the world like yeast working its way through dough. And all of the promises that those old prophets had promised who lived through the dimly lit room and had the faith to lean into the story, all of those promises were going to come into fruition in this one person, Jesus. The animosity between different races and ethnicities, that's going to come to an end. And the competition and unequal opportunities between men and women, this is also going to be made right. And the wealthy and the rich and the powerful, eventually they will come to their senses and they will relinquish their grip on the wealth that they have and they will give it away to the poor. This is the promise of the scriptures. And everything that was set off course throughout the history of the world is going to come underneath the stewardship of the creator once again. And all of the injustice and all of the trauma and the pain and the death and the dying will be made right. This is the story that we live in. I'm talking to you about the terrible news that you've just received about the health of your aging parents. I'm talking to you about your new friend who was diagnosed with stage 4 brain cancer and given 12 months to live. I'm talking to you about the lingering pain in your life from an absent and addicted father who did the best he could, but has left its mark on your life all the way into your 40s and 50s and 60s. I'm talking to you about the pain of that divorce and the child that you've lost. And the one that you have that is struggling to get out of bed, I'm talking to you about that little wave of anxiety that hits you in the morning. I'm talking about your life. It's going to be made right. Healing all of this is the promise in the dimly lit room, and the invitation of Jesus is to trust and relax. (laughs) and to trust your life into the care of others and to live by faith that can empower you to do the things that jesus is asking of you now i'm looking at the time and i'm realizing that i have two more points and so we're going to we're going to quickly move through those points the second is a not so great mirror in the ancient world a mirror was not like it is today. Do you guys know this? It was like a polished piece of bronze. And so you could get a general sense of how you looked, but for the most part, you really actually had no idea how you looked. And for some of us, that would be amazing. And for others, that would be a little bit challenging. But the idea is that you had to trust the people around you to like, get the things out of your teeth and all that kind of stuff. A mirror was not that great. It was like, I can kind of see what I look like, but I can't really see very well. This is the image that the Apostle Paul uses to describe what it's like for us to see all of the things that God has promised about us and the world come to fruition. He says this in 1 Corinthians For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. That's why we have to get a little bit of a cultural context here because when we look at a reflection, we look, we see an, an, a, an exact representation of how we look. But for him, it was like, I'm not quite sure what I look like. We see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see as we see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Or as Eugene Peterson says it in his translation, we don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. We'll see it as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. He's specifically talking about how dimly we see when we're trying to love one another. We see through a mirror dimly. And one day we will be able to see in full so if we could see the way that god sees we would be able to love in the way that god loves that's the basic thesis of paul and this is the whole story summed up love each other as i have loved you to which i want to reply i'm trying lord it's just really hard to see clearly how i'm supposed to do that i don't know if that's your experience of trying to love the people that you love the most but my experience is that i'm really trying to love And sometimes I don't actually know how to do that. I'm seeing through a mirror very dimly. So Dorothy Day um, has been said to be one of the most remarkable women of the 20th century. And her autobiography is called The Long Loneliness. She talks in that autobiography about a loneliness that never really went away, but what we see chronicled in her life is that when she came into the church, she found a sense of community and a shared purpose with people who could help her see what she could not see by herself. These people in the church helped her keep serving the poor and working for justice even though she never saw the end of poverty and she rarely saw the justice that she longed for. Which brings us to the third very brief scene, the endless stadium seating. So in this same section of the letter after he was just uh, went on and on about men and women standing in a dark room living by faith that God would lead them, waiting for the light to show up. He invites his readers to imagine that all of those people who live by faith have filled up endless rows of stadium seating waiting for you and I to run our race. That's the image. For them, it was waiting for what was to come and what is about to happen when God came as light into the darkness, promising us to come again through the work of the church. He calls all of those that have come before us a great cloud of witnesses, and he says to the community effectively, all of those people who have run their race are cheering you on, and their faith in the midst of a dimly lit room can encourage our faith. He says since we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, whatever you need to do in order to throw off the things that hinder you, you should do that. You should go ahead and throw off everything that hinders you. Let us lay aside every encumbrance to our faith as those people did of of the past and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus who is the beginning of our faith. Friends, the ancient runners ran naked. And maybe that's not an image for you to put into your mind. Um, But imagine wanting so badly to be unhindered from running that you were willing to take off all of your clothes to make sure that your clothes weren't a problem. Friends, the thing I love about the church is that because we are folded into the family of God, as Thomas taught us last week, because we are being built up together from the very beginning until now, we have millions of lives that we can point to of people who have been living by faith, either in a dimly lit room with the assurance that God was speaking or looking through not so great of a mirror, trusting that it is enough because we are surrounded by one another. When we can't see, others get to see for us. And so listen, this is how I want to end. If, if you are feeling like you are living your life by faith through a bit of a dimly lit room and it's becoming burdensome to you, my sense is that there just are not enough people around you. That's what we're doing here together. We're trying to create an environment where each of us doesn't have to feel so alone in the journey. And I think the greatest risk to anyone's faith, your faith, is that we would believe that we can do this alone. We cannot do this alone. There are people in this room that want to help you see when you can't see clearly. And so as we transition into ministry we're going to begin welcoming the children up uh back into our time of worship very soon i got a couple of questions that i want you to consider as we close show those questions right here what area of your life feels like is in need of faith right now is the first question where do you need faith like where do you need it it's okay to need faith guys that's like what we're in this for and i know a lot of you in this room and i'm actually looking at many of you in this room and i know some of the stories that you're holding and i'm like they would take me a lot of faith to navigate what you're trying to navigate and then the second question is who do you have around you that can help you lean into that faith right now who do you have? And so I want you to just settle into this. We're gonna m- make a little space for you to reflect. Tori, do you have anything that's come up for you in this time?
0: As I think about the words that Jared has shared with us and just um, the, the work and courage that there is sometimes in, in letting the people be around. Um, and so, yeah, and thinking about uh, the community that we formed together and the ability to, to hold that faith, um, I just sense an invitation to um, to prayer for help and the courage of welcoming the people around us, which is sometimes hard if we've been, we've been hurt. It's been hard if, if um, we've gone through moments where we needed people around us and they weren't there, so it's hard to believe and hard to let in. And also, that's the life that we are called to as disciples
1: of Jesus. That's right. That's really good. So friends, we're going to move into a time where we are uh, carving out time to pray for each other. So if you're on our prayer ministry team this morning, begin making your way up to the corners. Um, If you are trained to pray, um, you're also welcome to make yourself available. Uh, When we go ahead and stand, the worship team is going to come up. Um, guys, one of the things that we're trying to, to really make important is we want to welcome these kids into worship. So, kids, we want to welcome you in. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to worship now, so everyone's going to stand up. Kids, are going to um, invite you to join us in worship. And if you need some prayer, please grab your parent and, and ask them to take you to, to someone that can pray for you. So, church, let's worship together.